party in downtown San Diego after the Game 3 win was something the gas lamp had never seen. Padres had taken a two-games-to-one lead over a Dodgers team many said were all but guaranteed to make it to the World Series. Padres fans spilled out all over the streets. People not even at the game came downtown to get in on the fun. A release of pent-up Padre fan energy building up for the past 16 years. The celebration was apparent, but so was the realization one more game needed to be played and one more game needed to be won. The Padres may have held the lead in the series, but a team can never think they have it in the bag. The Padres knew they were going to have to bring everything they had to wrap up the series in front of Petco Park's screaming fans. A nice gift to the people who had stood by the franchise when things were not good. I'm Matt Scraby, and this is 12 Games in October. The history of the San Diego Padres in the postseason is one with not a lot to talk about. Including the 2022 postseason, the Padres had been to the playoffs only seven times in the 53-year history of the franchise. And further, the Padres had only been to the National League Championship Series two times prior, 1984 and 1998, which led to the World Series. The Padres would eventually lose their World Series, but I say all of that to set the scene for how historic this was for the team. Being in the playoffs had been rare for Padres fans. Winning playoff series had been even more rare. And if the Padres were to get to the NLCS, that would make it once every 18 years the Padres would at least have a shot at the pennant. One more thing. The wait for these Padres fans had been 24 years. There was a lot of emotion behind this game. There was a lot of emotion behind this game against a hated rival. The buzz heading into the game was unreal. It was a Saturday, but 97.3 The Fan was out in full force prior to Game 4. Ben and Woods broadcasted from the loft before the game and were followed up by Chris Ello and Coach John Quintera. As you heard in Episode 6, the amount of Padres fans flowing into Petco Park was astonishing, and the buzz was even louder. We talked about the legend of Joe Musgrove in Episode number 3 before he dismantled the New York Mets. And if the baseball deities didn't think there were enough storylines for Joe Musgrove in these playoffs, they made room for one more. Hometown hero Joe Musgrove was not only coming off of one of his best performances of his career, but he was going to start a game at Petco Park, which could lead to the Padres eliminating the Dodgers. You really can't get much more perfect than that. Before the game, Bo Mel was asked about having Joe on the mound after his last start against the Mets. You know, I think you go even go back to opening day here, where there were a lot of nerves for him. First time hometown boy pitching in front of full house and and pitching fantastic. Same thing in New York, so I think he's got a little experience doing this, and he's a guy that we have a lot of confidence in. After having some time to reflect on it, here's what Jesse Agler and Tony Gwynn Jr. thought about Joe Musgrove coming into the game and what he accomplished. Yeah, I think after what Joe did in New York in the final game of the Wild Card Series, you know, particularly with the ear check and everything like that, he, he felt invincible to me. And I'm guessing out on the mound, he probably felt fairly invincible as well. Uh, He goes out and uh, you you can't ask for much more than he gave in that game here. And you can only imagine the pressure that he was feeling, Um, you know, being the guy from here, having signed the contract, coming off the ear game in New York and having to pitch in front of just a rabid collection of people from his hometown with an opportunity to knock the Dodgers off. I mean, mentally, most people would fall apart before ever taking the mound. And then Joe went out there and gave you six phenomenal innings, and and that's really all the Padres needed with the way the bullpen was going. I, I personally felt going into that game, it was going to be really tough to top what he had just done in New York. Like, the the way he pitched in that game – the expectation was set that that was what everybody was going to expect. And he was brilliant. I mean, he had the rough third inning. He gave up the two runs in that inning. But after that, he gave up nothing. He settled down. Um, I'm sure nerves were, because all those reasons you just heard from Jesse, were through the roof. And so I, I, in some ways, he was, a, he was a victim of his own success in the prior series against the Mets because of how well he pitched. But six innings, two runs... Um, and it was it, listen for as well as he pitched 
it was quiet in, in this building yeah. when it was 2 nothing. I, I The other thing I'll remember from that is, obviously, they're down. He's done. You're waiting for something to happen with the offense. But when Tyler Anderson only went five, I felt to myself, you got a shot here. He was the Dodgers starter. The Dodger bullpen was not throwing the way the Padre bullpen No, was. it wasn't. They were not going to be able to protect a 2 nothing lead the way I think the Padres would have been able to protect a 2 nothing lead. And I'm not trying to act like I was Nostradamus and I knew it was going to go down the way that it did, but you knew you had a shot against their bullpen. They were not in, like, shutdown form. And when the starter went five, even though there were five great innings, even though there were five innings and he left with a lead, um, you, you kind of felt like, all right. It, you know, did, feel, it did feel like, okay, whoo, get that guy out of there. Yeah. This, is, this is our opportunity yes, right here. Exactly. On the other side, the Dodgers were going to use starter Tyler Anderson. Fans at Petco Park were in their seats well in advance of first pitch. Rally towels were in full force once again. And like I said, the stadium was ready to get the game started. They would have to wait for that to happen, and I don't even think it was bad the Padres had to wait a little bit before they got underway. First pitch was scheduled for 6.37 p.m. Pacific, but in a rare sight at Petco Park, rain delayed the start until 7.08 p.m. That means Padres fans had another 31 minutes to get even more wild before first pitch. And trust me, they did. During that weather delay, the crowd never lost the energy they had coming into the stadium. Petco Park was alive. Here's Chris Ello talking about the atmosphere. Well, I walked in really early, uh, so I don't don't remember what... I believe did a show, right? We might have done a show that afternoon. I actually don't recall, but we got I, either way. I got to the stadium two or three hours before the game, so I got in to try to beat a you know beat the rush. Um, but you know, it was just it was just noise the entire time. I mean, there was a buzz throughout the stadium, and you know, baseball is already a fun game to me. I love it, but it takes on a whole new meaning when there's tension on every pitch. I mean, even in the top of the second inning with nobody on base and it's ball one and there's a close pitch that gets called for ball two and everybody in the crowd, oh, yeah. come on. The, the collective groan. You know, instead of it being one and one, it's now two and oh, and everybody groans. Uh, but so that was just an awesome feeling. There were so many aspects of the night that set up for a memorable night and not only because of the result. First, a rain delay in itself for Petco Park is rare. Padres have had just eight games delayed by rain since moving to Petco in 2004, the latest of those coming September 9th before a game against the Dodgers. A full-on rain out in itself has only happened three times, so rain was different for a baseball game at Petco Park. Oh yeah, before I forget, the Padres have also had two games delayed by bees. Second, when they say Petco Park was packed that night, it was an understatement. I didn't have a seat that night, and since the national media had descended upon San Diego, I was solely going to be walking around the stadium to take in the sights and sounds. The official attendance was 45,139, but I definitely felt like there was a lot more. And let's be honest, the 31-minute rain delay allowed some Padres fans to get a few more snacks and drinks before the game began. As we'll talk about in this episode, the Petco Park crowd was a vibe on a Saturday night. Officially, first pitch was 7.08 p.m. Pacific. Joe Musgrove took the mound and he would pitch the most important game of his life six days after pitching the most important game of his life. The spotlight continued to find Joe, but it wasn't because of his doing. He just did what he was asked by his team. It just so happened the universe gave us Joe Musgrove in big spots. Mookie Betts was the Dodger leadoff hitter, and Joe threw him a fastball for a called strike, and the game was underway. Again, I can't understate the factor of the crowd. This was a feeling you could only create in the playoffs. Fans were locked into each and every pitch. Let's hear from Jesse Agler and Tony Gwynn Jr. 2-2 at the top of the zone, strike three call. Betts goes down, looking one away in the first. Fastball, top of the zone. Joe Musgrove gets his night started off. On the right foot with a K of bets. And I know we're in serious mode right now, but for one second, let's enjoy the discussion from the guys about Game 4's home plate umpire. Got our first look of the night at the Ripper. Home plate umpire, John Tumpane. Watching on TV, you'll understand why they call him that. When Tumpane 
calls a guy out on strikes. He looks like, I guess it's late enough, you know, we can, he looks like he's stabbing him. And they yeah. call him the Ripper, like a serial killer. <laughs> True story. He slashes his right hand. My kind of radio broadcast right there. Back to the game. Turner swings, pops it up, very shallow right field. Cronenworth, long run, going back, out towards the line. He gets there, and he makes the catch two away. Rangy play by Jake Cronenworth. I don't know that As you heard, Jake Cronenworth made a good play to get Trey Turner for the second out. But as I have said all NLDS long, the heavy hitters keep on coming in. A guy who is more than capable of taking a team on his back, Freddie Freeman, was at the plate to face Joe Musgrove. Musgrove would start the at-bat with two balls to fall behind 2-0. Two cold strikes by the Ripper evened up the count. And as I've said in this series before, Freddie Freeman is not an easy out. He would foul off the next four pitches. Two and two. Here it comes again. And Freeman swings, lines it through the left side at a base hit. Going to find a gap between Grisham and Bopar. Trent cuts it off in front of the warning track. Fires it to second base. And Freeman slides in with a double. Just an absolutely clinical plate appearance put together by Freddie Freeman. And there's a reason he's one of the best hitters in baseball you just saw. The Dodgers likely felt the heat of elimination to a team they have handled easily so many times in the past. They were the best team in baseball throughout the 2022 regular season. These at-bats for the Dodgers were at-bats to help save their season. The Dodgers could score runs in a hurry, and the Dodgers cleanup hitter Will Smith was strolling to the plate after a very hectic day. Here's Jesse with more. And Will Smith, whose wife had a baby this morning, stands in. And he takes a cutter for a strike, nothing and one. Two and one to Smith. Here it comes from Joe. And that's a little floater out of the shallow center field. Might have broken his back. Grisham on the run. Coming in. He'll get there to make the running catch and end the inning. Trent Grisham, rangy as ever, out in center field. Joe Musgrove gave up that double, but so far so good through the first three outs. Dodgers starter Tyler Anderson would make quick work of Hassan Kim, Juan Soto, and Brandon Drury. Manny Machado singled, but never was able to leave first base. In the top of the second, Joe Musgrove picked up where he left off and struck out Max Muncy swinging on a slider. Justin Turner singled to left, but just like Manny in the first inning, Turner was unable to move past first. With Thompson popping out in foul territory and Chris Taylor looking at strike three to end the top of the second, Joe Musgrove was fully in control. Jake Cronenworth was the first out in the bottom of the second after striking out looking. Will Myers struck out on a foul tip for out number two. It was only the bottom of the second, but you could feel this game was going to be a fight. Jerickson Profar would foul off three pitches, and on the sixth pitch from Anderson... Did it for you. Here's the one and two. Profar out in front, grounds it through the hole, and a base hit into left field. Big bat flip from Profar, now midway between home and first. A two-out single here in the bottom of the second inning, and that will get Trent Grisham to the plate. These innings have mirrored each other in so many ways. Single by Profar gets, I think, the hottest hitter on this ball club to the plate, and Trent Grisham. Well, I don't think anybody would argue with you. Trent homered again yesterday. Profar would make Anderson work, and the very next batter, Trent Grisham, worked a walk. Two on and two outs for Austin Nola. Ola, a couple of doubles, three RBIs as part of his production this October. 2-0 pitch hit hard on the ground, but right to the third baseman, Muncy. He'll bring it himself. They force out Profar at third, and the side is retired. In a game like this, you never know when the next scoring opportunity will be. Each at-bat was the biggest at-bat of the game. Joe Musgrove went back to work and got Gavin Lux out, but then he walked Mookie Betts. And Trey Turner, who had already hit two home runs in the series, was up next. Nothing in one to Trey Turner. He's not running, and a hot smash that gets through Manny goes down the left field line. That's his rounding second. He is going to try for third. Little bobble Profar. He sends it into Kim, and Trey Turner with his wheels able to get all the way around to second base. So a walk in what they'll probably call a double. And now runners on second and third, one out for Freddie Freeman. And away we go again for the Dodgers with runners in scoring position. Hot shot at Manny. He's unable to come up with Fortunately it for Joe Musgrove, the double was not enough for a speedy Mookie Betts to get him from first all the way home. 
from a runner on first to runners on second and third in an instant. And now Joe Musgrove had to worry about Freddie Freeman. One and on the count. Here's the pitch from Joe. And Freeman hits a chopper to first. That gets by Myers, and it's down the line. A fair ball headed towards the corner. Bent says score. Trey Turner will score. Freeman into second base. And the Dodgers snap in 0 for 20 with runners in scoring position with a two-out double by Freddie Freeman. His second double of the night already. And L.A. in front, two to zip. I guess it's fitting that it comes from the part of the lineup that has really been held for the most part silent throughout this series. Great players come through in big moments and with the Dodgers season on the line, that was one of the biggest moments yet. The Dodgers had proven to be difficult to come back against, but the Padres did it once this series and would have to do it again. Musgrove would face a situation with Freeman on second and Will Smith at the plate. Two and two to Will Smith. Here's the pitch from Musgrove and a ground ball slowly to the right side. Cronenworth ranging to his left has it. Gets rid of it, throws Smith out. That's the second out of the inning as Freeman advances from second to third. And the left-hand hitting Max Muncy will come to bat. Musgrove would go in and out of the zone to Muncy and he would draw an eight-pitch walk. The pitch count for Joe Musgrove was starting to be somewhat concerning. After walking Muncie, he would take care of Justin Turner to close out the inning. But through three, Joe had already logged 66 pitches. Pitching took over in the bottom of the third inning. Tyler Anderson would get Kim, Soto, and Machado out in order. Then in the top of the fourth, Joe Musgrove would do the same by sitting down Trace Thompson, Chris Taylor, and Gavin Lux. Even better, Musgrove would need only eight pitches to get those three outs. In a game where Joe Musgrove needed to go as long as he could, he just saved himself at least an inning. Nerves were getting thin in the stands at Petco Park. The Dodgers had a 2-0 lead and there had not been much of anything happening with the Padres' offense, but the feeling of doom was not quite there just yet. The bottom of the fourth was once again 1-2-3 for Tyler Anderson, and as I was walking around Petco Park, I could hear the mumbling and worrying from Padres fans. The morale was low, and it seemed all but inevitable the series would shift back to Los Angeles for Game 5 on Sunday. Joe Musgrove had put himself back on track starting the top of the fifth after throwing 74 pitches in the game. He would be starting the gauntlet of the Dodgers lineup. Joe would start forcing Mookie Betts to fly out to center. Then he would get Trey Turner to hit a pop-up, which he would also catch for the second out of the inning. Then when things got rolling again... Freddie Freeman catches a break. Musgrove really labored through the first three innings. He retired the bottom of the order on just eight pitches last inning, and now a couple of quick outs against Betts and Trey Turner. That could be huge in this game as Freddie Freeman stands in. He's been a problem tonight. First pitch coming, and Freeman swings, lines it up the middle, hits the bag at second base, and deflects out into shallow right field. Kim tracks it down, but it'll be a base hit for Freddie Freeman, who's now three for three. The Petco crowd had seen this all too many times before. A break that goes the other team's way, which then propels the opponent to a victory. Any more runs for the Dodgers would be more like nails in the coffin, is what the collective thought of Padres fans I talked to felt like in that moment. Joe Musgrove would face Will Smith. One and two to Will Smith. Joe comes home. And a swing and a miss. Got the fastball past him up in the zone at 93 miles an hour. Six strikeouts for Joe Musgrove. No runs, a hit, Freeman left at first base. And instantly, every sort of anxious feeling left the body and the stadium went crazy. In a game like this, emotions swing from happy to sad faster than a Robert Suarez fastball. It felt like it was getting late early for the Padres. The bottom of the fifth didn't go much better than the rest of the game. Tyler Anderson was throwing it well and gave up a walk to Austin Nola. But outside of that, the inning was easy for Anderson. As I was walking around the stadium, I came across a nice group of Padres fans who were still hopeful, but it was starting to become more and more difficult to be hopeful. Tyler Anderson had made things tough on the Padres, and as I have said in this podcast before, elimination games are meant to be difficult. Elimination games against a division rival are a gauntlet. Joe Musgrove had locked in and went out for the top of the sixth. Max Muncy led off the inning and promptly grounded out to second for the first out. Then Musgrove walked Justin Turner. Then he faced Trace Thompson. 1-0 to Thompson. And the pitch is hit up the middle and into center field for a base hit. Might have skipped off the mound. Either way, a walk and a single with one out here in the six. They put a couple of guys on and uh, will get the struggling Chris Taylor to the plate. Concerned Padres fans were staring at the field, locked into every single pitch, and Chris Taylor was up next. Runners lead at first and second, one away. 
Musgrove will look back at Justin Turner. He's the lead runner. And the pitch to Taylor on the outside corner. Strike three called. Taylor doesn't think so. He thought it was outside. He's face-to-face with the plate umpire, Tom Payne, who's trying to walk away from him. Taylor gets a couple of parting words in as he slowly walks back towards the third base dugout. He strikes out for the third time tonight and two down here in the sixth inning. A big-time strikeout for Joe Musgrove with the Dodgers threatening. He had two outs and needed to retire Gavin Lux to end the threat. Two and two to Gavin Lux. Runners lead at first and second. And Musgrove's 101st pitch of the night is swung on and missed. Gavin Lux strikes out and Musgrove gets through six. And an even bigger strikeout for Joe Musgrove. Everyone was standing on their feet for those two at-bats and Joe Musgrove rewarded the Padres faithful with two huge punchies, as Tony would say. After starting the game and racking up a lot more pitches than he would like, No-No Joe flipped a switch and ended up giving his team six innings. His night would be over, but he struck out eight and only gave up two earned runs. This may have not been wildcard game three, Joe Musgrove, but this was a high-level ace type of performance for him in the playoffs at home against the Dodgers. Now that we've had time to reflect on the playoffs, I don't think Joe Musgrove gets enough credit for what he did that night. A night that was going to be incredibly difficult was kept within reach with a Dodgers lineup that had made good pitchers look really bad. Joe Musgrove did his part, but now the Padres' offense needed to do theirs. Chris Martin relieved Tyler Anderson after Anderson gave the Padres a really tough time in five innings, striking out six Padres and only giving up two hits. There was a question about why Dave Roberts and the Dodgers removed Anderson after such a strong start to the game, but a mistake or perceived mistake by the Dodgers was an opening for the Padres. Juan Soto would line out against Martin to start the bottom of the sixth, but then things looked up. Manny Machado was the leader of this team, and he needed to get something going. And he swings at the first pitch here, lines it into right field. That's a base hit. Second of the night for Machado, and the Padres is going to bring the tying run to the plate with one out here in the sixth. Ho-hum, another base hit for Manny Machado. Locked in at the plate this time. Brandon Drury would need to find something big. First pitch, and Drury swings. It's a ground ball sharply to the left side. Turner scoots to his right, has it, goes to second one. Lux his turn, no chance. As Drury, running hard, of course, able to beat it out. I think had that been hit at Trey Turner, they got a chance to turn two, but he sort of had to slide a little bit over towards third base. Padres fans groaned in solidarity after two outs went up on the board. It didn't matter what had happened leading up to this point. Any mistake or non-productive out loomed larger and larger. But then, Jake Cronenworth continued the inning. And right here and right now, the Padres are one good swing away from tying this game. Two and two on the way. Jake swings. It's a chopper to the left side. Turner has to go over towards the bag at third. He's got it. Long throw, no chance. Cronenworth beats it out. And a bad throw from Turner anyway. Infield single, Jake Cronenworth. And now two on and two out for Will Myers. Nobody over there with the exception of Turner. And he was pretty much coming from the shortstop position. Long way to to throw, a long throw. Cronenworth has himself an infield single. It doesn't matter how you get on base. It just matters you do get on base. Jake Cronenworth set it up for Will Myers, the longest tenured Padre to write a legend that can never be forgotten. Runners will go. He finds a gap. Might be able to tie the game. Three and two. There they go. He swings and misses. Strike three. Fastball up and out of the zone at 95. And Martin dances out of a little bit of trouble here in the sixth inning to strand a pair of runners. The legend was not meant to be, but I will tell you about something a little later that was unquestionably legendary by Will Myers. After 101 hard-fought pitches, Joe Musgrove departed and Stephen Wilson replaced him for the top of the seventh. He walked Mookie Betts. Then if the Rally Goose wasn't a strange enough character in this story, the game was stopped. There is a drone over center field. And so play is stopped. So the drone right now is kind of hovering out beyond second base. It has uh, blinking green lights, so it's uh, fairly easy to see. It's now, I mean, it's got to be 100 feet over the field. It's gone up, but it is still there. And uh, you got MLB security involved now. Betts and Myers are sort of admiring it from first base. Cronenworth sort of uh, leery looking up over his shoulder. He's the closest guy to it. He kept the baseball just in case it came back close again. (laughs) I I have lost visual of the drone. Looks like it. it. You got it? Yeah. 
Here's a crazy Scraby conspiracy. The drone was sent by Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred himself to ice Steven Wilson and force a delay. Okay, not really, but I did say crazy Scraby conspiracy. Whoever was flying the drone, it was not smart and in clear violation of an FAA sporting event temporary flight restriction, which disallows unmanned aircrafts from flying within 3,000 feet of any stadium with a seating capacity of 30,000 or more an hour before the event until an hour afterwards. And even though I'm joking about the conspiracy theory, Stephen Wilson did allow Mookie Betts to take second after throwing a wild pitch with Trey Turner at the plate. The very next pitch. Usually makes that play. Here's the 2-1. He does bunt and up the first baseline. It's a beauty. Going to be fielded by Wilson. He kicks it away into foul ground. The ball gets away, and Betts was on his way home. Might have had a chance to score, but slammed on the brakes and retreated to third. I think Nolan and Wilson both went to field it, and each one thought the other one had picked it up. And, in fact, it had kicked off, I think, a foot or a glove and rolled into foul territory. But it'll be a bunt single for Trey Turner. And now runners on the corners and nobody out with Freddie Freeman coming up. I'm not sure whose foot that ended up coming off of, but you're right. Both went to field it and then both went to cover home. Doubts were in full effect in Padres fans' minds. You could hear the pain of realization this game may be over after Mookie Betts made it to third. There had been no evidence whatsoever to suggest the Padres were going to be able to get their bats going in this game. There really had been nothing to get the crowd going. A 3-0 or 4-0 Dodger lead was most likely game over, or so it felt like. And the hill to climb became even steeper when you realized Freddie Freeman was at the plate with runners on first and third and no outs. Freeman a 3-for-3 night with a pair of doubles, and he's driven in the only two runs of this game. Takes the first pitch inside. That one gets away. Headed to the backstop. Betts will come in and score. No, they're going to say hit by pitch. Both runners advanced, Betts scored, but now they're going to say it hit Freeman in the foot. Now it certainly explained why it kicked away the way that it did. The bases are loaded, though, with nobody out. A hush came over the crowd at Petco Park. They could not believe what they were seeing, and they were almost sure this game was over. The bases were loaded with no outs in the top of the seventh. If you pay attention to win probability, after Freddie Freeman loaded the bases, the Dodgers had a 91.9% chance to win, but to some, it felt like a lot more than that, unofficially. Will Smith was coming to the plate, and Steven Wilson was going to have to work to get out of the jam he got himself in. 2-0 Dodgers in the seventh inning. And now Wilson will deal. First pitch swinging. Smith lines one to deep left. Pro far back. He'll make the catch over the shoulder. Plenty deep enough for Betts to tag and score. He's on his way. And a sacrifice fly is made at 3-0 Dodgers. And since we were just talking about win probabilities, somehow Will Smith scoring a run lowered the win probability to 91.5%. I'm sure the math works out, but it makes no sense to me. Steven Wilson was removed from the game with one out in favor of the lefty-on-lefty matchup of Max Muncie and Padres reliever Tim Hill. And the Dodgers had some trickery. Runners take their leads. They both go. The pitch is a strike and no throw from Nola. They got a gigantic jump and a double steal as Freeman goes to second and Turner goes to third. That is big league scouting at its finest. That is something they had picked up on clearly. They wasted no time. One look from Tim Hill, Turner's off to the races, they get a double steal. The pressure was all on Tim Hill to keep this game at three to nothing. One and two now, and a swing and a miss. Hill strikes him out. Two down in the inning, and now the infield can back up, although danger not fully averted. Turner coming up, Trace Thompson on deck with a base open, just in case you're curious. After the double steal, big strikeout from Tim Hill. Brings himself one out away from limiting the damage. Tim Hill did what Tim Hill usually does and limited the damage while getting out of a really tough situation. Best case scenario for the Padres after staring down bases loaded with no outs. As we headed to the bottom of the seventh, I can tell you the mood was weird. Padres fans were staying to try to get a glimpse of some sort of comeback. Again, there had been nothing to cheer about, and since I didn't have a seat, I went to the top of the Western Metal Building in left field. As I walked around Petco Park, I let the crowd tell me what was happening on the field. Dodgers reliever Tommy Canely entered the game, relieving Chris Martin, and his inning started like this. The bottom of the Padre batting order, 7A9. It's been the best part of the lineup all series long. Been held quiet for the most part. They have reached base three times apiece. 
They're going to need some more of that magic here in the seventh. Big opportunity on three and one. The pitch to Profar is inside ball four, a leadoff walk. And that is the first time tonight that the Padres have the leadoff man aboard. It has to start somewhere, and a walk is a great way to get things going. And when the next Padre hitter was announced, the crowd went crazy. Trent Grisham had been the star of the postseason thus far, and he had earned your attention when he came to the plate. He wasted no time. 3 nothing Dodgers, bottom of the seventh. Profar at first, nobody out. Trent Grisham, a left-handed batter at the plate. Canely deals, first pitch swing, and a line drive into deep right center field. This time, Thompson can't make the catch. He dove and somehow played it on the short hop. Sends the ball into second base. That will hold Grisham to a single. And quite frankly, to me, you're the outfielder. Trace Thompson just got lucky there. Once he left his feet, he had to do whatever he could to keep that ball in front and was able to really pick it while being airborne to die. If that ball gets by him, that's an easy run, perhaps a triple, maybe more for Grisham. Instead, it's first and third, no outs, as Austin Nola comes to the plate. I've lost count of how many clutch hits Trent Grisham had at that point. Bottom line was he kept the pressure on the Dodgers. Austin Nola followed, and although he wasn't as clutch as Trent Grisham, he did have some big hits and big spots to that point in the postseason. I had to get a great question from Padres Radio pre- and post-game host Sam Levitt. And he asked Bob Melvin, well, here's Sam. Bob, with what Austin Nola is doing offensively behind the plate, catching day after day, handling this entire pitching staff, the bullpen, the way it's performing. What's impressed you most throughout the course of the year with what Austin's done and his development as a catcher? It's, I don't even, I can't even begin to tell you how, how quick a study it's been and gotten to the point where he is right now. His relationship with the pitchers, his relationship with myself, the unspoken language between the manager and the catcher, his relationship with Ruben in, in between innings, the confidence that he brings the pitchers um, in putting down the right numbers when they have you know, that same thought in their head, uh, studying with them, uh, the, it's, it's been as quick as anything I've, I've ever seen or ever dealt with for a guy that has not been a catcher. So a lot of credit to what he's done. A lot of things that don't, don't show up in, you know, in analytics or stats, he does. And when you're dealing with a guy like you, Darvish, you're dealing with a guy with Blake Snell, all these guys are different in how they go about it, and they all have the same amount of confidence with them, as, as do we as a staff. It's been fantastic. He would quickly go down 0-2, then would foul off another. Canely, the pause. Now the pitch. And a ground ball chopped to the right side. Freeman reaching for it, can't make the play. Rolls out to second base. The run will score, and everybody's safe. Three to one in the bottom of the seventh inning. There are no style points in the postseason. And the Padres are on the board. I heard the crowd erupt and cheer like it was a grand slam. The Padres were on the board, and they still had pressure squarely on the Dodgers' defense. Runners at first and second and no outs. There was an incredible chance the Padres could tie the game or even take the lead. Dave Roberts was not going to mess around with Canely and brought in Yancy Almani. This is the point the aura of the crowd went from hoping to cheer for a couple runs to a euphoric state of outer body experience. It was like fans flipped a switch. I had to see what was happening and made my way to a view of the field. Problem was, there were fans lining any place you could see a sliver of the field. Fans were everywhere. Again, it seemed like fans were multiplying. I continued to look for a spot with no success. Meanwhile, on the field, Hassan Kim was 0 for 3 in the game but battled with runners in scoring position. The at-bat started 2-0, then he swung through a 97-mile-an-hour sinker. And this is where I pass it off to Jesse Agler. Bob Melvin has said many times over the course of the year, he really doesn't like to sacrifice. Not that that has stopped the Padres from doing so at times. It also shows you how much, really, he allows his players to dictate the action. Freeman charging the 2-1 pitch, grounded towards third base. It gets by Muncy, and a fair ball down the left field line. Grisham's on his way home. He will score. Nolan to third, Kim to second, an RBI double in a one-run game. Tying run 90 feet away. Go-ahead run at second. Nobody out. And this place is going absolutely bonkers. Petco Park was going bonkers, and I heard the roar of the crowd. 
Here's what it sounded like where I was at. Three Padres fans ran down the ramp leading up to the Western Metal Building. They were screaming and yelling that they needed to get to their seats. They went to get their last beer of the game with vendors closing up shop. They ran and they chugged and they communicated. It was actually pretty impressive. I ran up to the top and finally got a view of the field. The crowd had come alive and they were making up for lost time. There were still no outs and the Padres had propelled themselves back in the game. Here's Jesse Agler looking back on that moment and realizing what was unfolding in front of him. For me, the the Kim double was the one when I knew everything was going to be okay. You know, they had broken through. Nola had just gotten the Padres on the board. You're down by two. And Tony and I had a whole conversation about whether or not Kim was going to bunt. And by the time the double happened, it was clear to us he was not going to lay down a bunt. However, it was not clear to the Dodgers, and they had Justin Turner playing in a little bit to protect against the bunt, and as soon as he bounced that ball beyond third base against the drawn-in defender, you know, okay, yeah, it's a one-run game now, but I knew everything was going to be good. I just, it, it was one of those moments in a game, you watch enough baseball, you get that gut feeling, and I was thinking to myself, everything is going to be great for the Padres tonight. Obviously, the crowd going crazy, and the music, and the rain, and all of it in that moment, but, you know, when, when they basically miscalculated whether or not Kim was going to bunt, I thought to myself, this is going to be really good. Yancy Almani was now in a dire situation for the Dodgers. No outs, Austin Nola on third and Kim at second, and the crowd was at full power. Here's the 2-0 pitch. Soto with a line drive into right field. That'll get down. And a base hit. Betts plays it on a hop. Fires towards the plate. No chance. Nola comes in to score. And the game is tied at three. Juan Soto, an RBI single. And still nobody out. Juan Soto had struggled as a Padre up until that point, but everything the Padres gave up to get him was worth it in that moment. The Padres weren't looking to just tie the game. They were looking to score some more with Manny Machado coming into the plate and no outs. Almani would work the count. It's 2-2 now. I expect to see two more sliders. Three straight at this point after a first pitch fastball. The 2-2 swing and a miss. Got him with the slider. And Manny strikes out. That is the first out here in the bottom of the seventh inning. Brandon Drury will be the batter. Seventh man to hit. And again, I mean, we just can't say it enough. Profar, Grisham, Nola, 7-8-9 got this whole thing started. With the game time, Padres fans felt like they had new life. It certainly wasn't great that Manny struck out, but there wasn't the feeling of agonizing defeat with every out. This game could not be lost in this inning, but the game could be won. Brandon Drury was up next. Runners on the corners, one out. First pitch to Drury, swung on, popped up, foul ground. First base, Freeman over near the dugout, and he will make the catch one-footed. Soto started a tag from first to second to try and create some chaos with Kim at third base. So both runners back where they started in two away. Freeman realized that Soto was being aggressive because there was no one there covering. So he could take off as far as he wanted to as long as he could beat Freeman back to first base who was all the way by home plate. The swing from no outs to two outs was quick and painful for Padres fans. They had a runner at first and third for two outs now and couldn't get any more movement. Dodgers manager Dave Roberts elected to go with the lefty-lefty matchup between Alex Fessia and Jake Cronenworth. The situation was the same. Runners on first and third and two outs. Fessia delivers, and Jake takes outside ball two. Soto is going to take second base. Now the Padres had two runners in scoring position and a really good chance to take the lead. He has just now arrived. Stolen base for Juan Soto. The Dodgers had no interest whatsoever in throwing down there. So much so that he kind of stopped most of the way to second base. Like, come on, throw down here to see if he could maybe draw a throw and allow Kim to try and score. But I like side shuffle the rest of the way. <laughs> so now two in scoring position. Two and two. Here's the pitch. Cronenworth swings, lines it into center field. That's a base hit. Kim will score. Here comes Soto. The throw from Thompson kicks off the mound and down to second. Cronenworth. A two-run single, and the Padres in front for the first time tonight. It's 5-3. to three. 
Petco Park had been as quiet as it had been all season long entering the bottom of the seventh inning. Fans and myself were moving without even thinking. I saw groups of people jumping up and down together, and I'm not kidding when I tell you I still get chills when listening to the radio call or when I see it on TV. The reaction of the crowd, the reaction of the dugout, the reaction of Jake Cronenworth, all of it was pure 100% raw emotion. This is what every Padres fan had been dreaming of heading to the game that night. The crowd was at a new level of excitement. The energy was intoxicating, and I'm pretty sure nearly 45,000 fans blacked out in this moment. Obviously, this was high emotion from the fans and from the stadium, but how in the world do broadcasters stay in the moment? I asked Jesse and Tony, and Tony took the first crack at it. Let me go first, because I'm probably the one that has the hardest time staying in it. I know there was at least two or three times in that inning alone where I wanted to like stand up and two-hand high-five Jesse, but we were <laughs> literally like, it, he was literally calling it. So, I mean, he didn't know this, but I had to like, kind of like control myself because that's that's generally what like my reaction would have been but I have to remember that I'm actually calling a game and him his professionalism kind of kept me kept me in the in the in the area cuz I was I was pumped as as these balls were going down the line and I'm like literally standing up waving people in and I I I, mean, I wanted to go a lot further but I, you know obviously I have to be a professional here and Jesse Agler I'm not gonna lie. I kind of I blacked out a little bit. Like I don't I don't remember being in that moment. I think you know, as an announcer, oftentimes your first thought is I really don't want to mess this up. So you try and get the nuts and bolts of it right. You want to make sure you get the right guy scoring. You know, right, the right, right guy coming in behind him and all of that. So you're sort of like hyper locked in on all the details because you're realizing you know this is going to be a call that's going to be heard by a lot of people and potentially for a lot of years. And so you want to be kind of like on top of the details. And even if it's not like the greatest call in the world, so long as you get all the information right, right. you know that's what matters. And I. I just remember being like so hyper focused on that that everything else was like blacked out. And, you know, you're kind of like blinders on. And, um, you know, you got Jake standing at second base, and you're just trying to describe the moment. But also you want to shut up a little bit because you want the crowd to be able to kind of have their moment and be a part of it. Obviously, I want to get out of the way so Tony can analyze what just happened and everything. And, um, you know, going through that really for the first time, you know, I know I did playoff games with Ted in 2020, but it was just so different, obviously, with no crowd. And, you know, this was a moment beyond anything that I had experienced in 2020. So really as an announcer doing this for the first time you know it was just sort of like it it felt unfamiliar obviously very exciting but I, I just didn't want to mess anything up I wanted to let the moment um, you know come across the way it should and then to just kind of get out of the way for for both the crowd and for Tony from here the crowd was standing and from here there was no one leaving the stadium and to set the scene a little bit more the rain had started to fall on Petco Park it didn't matter these fans were going nowhere The Dodgers just had six more outs left in their season if they weren't able to get two more runs. Robert Suarez took over for Tim Hill. Trace Thompson would pop out to second base for the first out. Five more outs for the Dodgers. Then Cody Bellinger would pinch hit for Chris Taylor and fly out to Grisham in center field. Four more outs left in the Dodgers season. Suarez would then face Gavin Lux. Here's the 0-2. Got him. Lux swung and missed it, 99. Lux throws the bat, slams the helmet, tosses the elbow guard, and a 1-2-3 eighth inning for Robert Suarez. Only three more chances for the Dodgers to score some runs and keep their season alive. And as if the night couldn't get any more memorable, there was one more delay in this game. First, the rain delay to start the game. Second, the drone delay that was caused by an idiot. And third... A delay in order to allow the grounds crew to fix the mound while the rain started to fall harder and harder. While all of this was going on, the stadium blasted an all-too-familiar song for fans. Padres fans were singing Blink-182's All the Small Things, and it was raining. Delirious and euphoric, Padres fans were embracing each other, and the crowd sang together. Here's the crowd that night.
team would say after the game, the fans had a huge effect on the game that night. The levels of enthusiasm in this building right now cannot be measured. I mean, for the simple fact that it is raining as hard as it is and no one has left, lets you know how into this ball game these folks are. It sort of added to it. 0-1. With rain falling, the Padres would not be able to add on in the bottom of the eighth, and everyone set their sights on the top of the ninth. Josh Hader entered with the pressure of an entire city on his shoulders. I was standing in the press box, ready for a win and ready to go to the clubhouse. And I think the best way for this part of the story to be told would be to hear it from Jesse Agler and Tony Gwynn Jr. I want everyone listening to hear how tense this was. I edited out some pauses and blank spaces, but for the most part, this is how it went down. Bats tonight 0 for 2. He has walked twice and scored twice. They are soaked and psyched at Petco. The 0-2. Check swing and a ball down and in. They appeal. He went one away. First base umpire Lance Barksdale said that he offered. Betts had no argument. He put down his head, and he briskly walks back to the third base dugout. Slider down and in after two heaters. Couldn't check it. Padres two outs away from a trip to the NLCS. They have not yet slayed the dragon, but the dragon is up against the drawbridge. It's wounded. It's backing up, kind of looking around. Not sure what's happening. Here's Trey Turner. First pitch down and in, ball one. That was a slider from Hayter. Both Myers and Machado, the first and third baseman, are in just about on the grass in case Turner tries to bunt. 1-0 to Turner. Hayter delivers. And it's pop foul out of play. That'll be strike one. Padres trailed almost all night long. Going to the bottom of the seventh inning, they were behind three to nothing. And then they came alive against Canely, Almonte, and Vesia. They scored five runs in the seventh, and they lead 5-3 here in the ninth inning. One and one to Trey Turner. Hader will deal. And that's it in the air. Foul down the right field line. Myers over, but he's not going to have a play. It ends up 21 rows up. And now one ball and two strikes to Trey Turner. He's gone all fastballs here to Trey Turner. Let's see if the slider is the pitch of choice here, one-two. He's already struck out Betts now, the pitch, and Turner swings and misses it, a slider strike three. Back-to-back case for Hader, two down. Freddie Freeman, who had a huge home run against Hader in the postseason as a Brave, will now come to bat with two outs and nobody on. Hader will try and exercise a personal demon in the playoffs as the Padres try and exercise a 50-year demon. Lefty to lefty, first pitch on the way. Check swing, but a called strike gets nothing in one. Josh Hader on the mound, throwing to Austin Nola. Dirks and Profar is in left field. Trent Grisham in center, and Juan Soto in right. Who would have thought? Manny Machado is the third baseman. Kim at short, Cronenworth at second, Myers at first. 0-1 to Freddie Freeman. The pitch from Hader swung on and missed strike two. Back to the slider. 0-1. Freddie Freeman out in front. And the Padres one strike away from slaying the Dragon. Hader set and ready. 0-2. Swing and a miss. Freeman went after a slider in the dirt, and the ball game is over. The series is over, and the Padres have slayed the Dragon. They defeat the Dodgers in four games to advance to the National League Championship Series. They will play for the pennant beginning on Tuesday night here at home against the Phillies. The 2022 Padres had done something no one thought they could do. First, no one thought the Padres could ever beat the Mets. Then, if there was one out of ten that thought the Padres could beat the Mets, there was one in a hundred that thought the Padres could beat the Dodgers. Josh Hader saved the game by striking out the side, and not just any part of the order. The best part of the Dodgers order. Fans once again went insane, and as it was the previous night, Petco Park was won. People were hugging, laughing, cheering, and some were even crying. It hit me in that moment. Some of these fans had been supporting this team for over 50 years, and they had only made it to the NLCS two previous times. 
This one felt big. It felt like the underdog nature of the San Diego Padres reflected the attitude of San Diegans. For as long as I can remember, and even longer, the Padres were not historically a winning team. The Padres were the butt of jokes, but when it mattered most, the Padres came through for them, allowing them to feel vindication for all of those years of sticking by their team. In this episode, the end of the game is not the end of the episode, so stick with me. Final totals for the game, the Padres scored five runs on nine hits and had no errors. The Dodgers scored three runs on seven hits and had no errors. Tim Hill got the win, Almonte took the loss, and Josh Hader collected his third save of the postseason. And Josh Hader had pitched four and a third innings in the postseason so far, and he had only given up one hit. Now, the reason the podcast isn't over is because I got to go in the clubhouse with Tony Gwynn Jr., you know, to make sure his radio equipment worked correctly, and yes, that was the reason I was in there. But while I was in there, I was going to take it all in. Padres players were all jumping around, throwing champagne and beer in the air. Goggles were all handed out, and this was much more intense than the last celebration I went to, which was after they clinched a playoff spot. There was much more media. There were much more cameras. There was a whole lot more champagne, and things were bonkers. Joe Musgrove was seen pouring beer all over his head, and it wasn't only the players. The great Padres PR staff was celebrating as well. The baseball season is run by a whole lot more than just the players. This was an accomplishment for everyone. Tony got some interviews started, and of course, we had to start with Joe Musgrove. You stepped on the biggest stage in New York and shoved. You come out here, it looks a little bit different, but you pretty much did the same thing. Talk about what it meant to you to have this start in your city against the vaunted Dodgers and go out and put together another classic performance. Yeah, that's what's it, man. I mean, they've handed it to us pretty good all year long, but moments like this, you got to sit there and think about, you know, the other side if it goes well. You know, you think about, you know, beating the Dodgers in your home city and being from San Diego. Try to use as much of that energy and that, you know, uh, that excitement to channel it towards you. So early in that game, the plan, I mean, we knew it wasn't going to be a seven-inning, one-hit performance again. It's a really good lineup, so it was all about limiting the damage. Um, you know, they get the two runs early in the game, and my whole goal from that point on was to keep it at two, keep the crowd in it. You know, you see in New York, when the team, when the game starts to run away for the visitors, the crowd gets out of it, the energy, it's very difficult to come back from that, and we feel that as players. So keeping them at two, keeping the crowd in the game, giving us a chance. Once we pushed Anderson out, we knew we had a good chance to creep back in. Talk about that, because you didn't blink. You gave up the two runs. You stayed with it. That's not easy to do against that ball club because they can snowball on you real quick. How do you be able to really stop that and just get back to your game plan? Yeah, I mean, perspective, I guess. You know, you take it for what it is. You know, you can look at it as we're down 2-0 to the Dodgers. I don't know if we're going to come back. Or you look at it like my job's not done yet. I got to keep going and keep the game where it's at, and that's the focus, you know. Uh, Nola was incredible last night in all series, man. I mean, that guy's got every single game in the postseason. He's taking foul balls to the mask. He's blocked balls. He's banged up, but he stopped back there every single pitch and gave everything he had. And he's a big reason why we're where we are. I mean, this is now twice now. You've been given the ball in, you could argue, some of the biggest games in this franchise history, and you have just embraced it better than anybody I can think of. This, this is who you are. Yeah, man, I've been on teams, and I was on that Houston team in 17, and Verlander was our horse. That was a guy that we relied on. When his turn came up in the rotation, everybody felt like that was a night to win. So I'm trying to take that on. I'm trying to have these guys build around me and have some energy and some intensity when I'm out on that mound. We're going to have to start calling you Money. Joe Money Musgrove. Nice work. Then we move to the hero of the first and second series, Trent Grisham. Who has really endured a whole lot this year, but stayed with it. We get to the postseason, and this has been the Padres, one of the Padres' best players. Trent, talk a little bit about your series. Once again, coming through, making plays, just being there for your ball club that needed you. Um, I mean, it, it's, it hasn't been about me, man. I couldn't have endured what I endured, um, gone through what I did during the year without the guys around me. I mean, all the way from Bob to every guy in the locker room that believed in me. Um, I just want to say thank you to everybody that believed in me, and I'm happy that I can help contribute to the team win. What does it mean to you, the, the fact that you did endure so much and you've been able to play at an extremely high level? And I know it's not about you, it's about these guys in this locker room, but 
you contributed in a major way to help get to this point. It's got to mean a ton to you. It does. I mean, I, I knew it was there. Um, guys around me kept telling me they knew it was there. Um, so just to honestly, just to go through all that, I think not necessarily had to, but going through it, I mean, you learn so much when you're down. When you're down in the valley, I mean, you know, you learn so much about yourself. You learn so much about the, the people that care about you. Um, I learned a lot about my faith, honestly. I mean, it was it was awesome to it was awesome to <laughs> looking now. It was awesome to uh, go through, but uh, while I was in it, it was tough. But like I said, I couldn't have done it without the people around me. Aside from your faith, that you learned a lot about, what else was it that you learned about yourself as it pertains to the game? I learned that. He, even though when things ain't going right, I mean, there's always still a chance. If we're, if we're playing tomorrow, then I got a chance. So um, I, I learned about a lot about myself. Um, I believe in myself a lot more now because of it. So I'm just excited to go forward. Man, nobody deserves this more than you. Congratulations. Jake Cronenworth had the go-ahead two RBI double in the seventh, and Tony caught up with him. Huge knock. In a big moment, it seems like you've been that guy all season long. Walk us through it. I saw Vestia getting warmed up in the bullpen. Uh, I thought they were going to go to him right away, uh, but I don't think he was ready yet. So uh, they're giving me the bunt, so I fake bunted. Uh, and obviously, Vestia comes in, tough lefty. Not really many lefties that have too much success off him this year. Uh, honestly, just trying to get the barrel on the ball in the middle of the field and get those two guys in. That knock was reminiscent of the RBI single to get things started last night. Slider up, stayed on it beautifully. Just talk about that stroke. I mean, you've been hammering ball to the right side all season long. You stayed up the middle on that. Was that the game plan? Well, with those guys that are coming in late in the game, you know, with the stuff they have, you just gotta take a short swing and stay in the middle of the field and just hope for the best. This Dodger ball club gave you guys fits all season long. How difficult is it to get to the playoffs and basically remove the 19 games that happened prior to this series? Yeah, you know, they had our number during the regular season, uh, but we came in here, took one from them at their place, and with our fans and the crowd support behind us, the energy they brought pushed us to this win. Talk about the work at the bottom of the lineup. It's really been all postseason, but especially in this series, they were huge for you guys in, in creating chances for you guys to score runs. Yeah, uh, I think if there's anybody who's propelled us to where we're at now outside the bullpen, it's been those three guys down at the bottom of the order. They're just giving us the opportunity for the guys at the top of the lineup to get them in. Have you had a chance to wrap your mind around this NLCS that's coming on your way right now? No, I'm just going to enjoy this right now. We'll worry about that in the next couple days. Enjoy, brother. Then Blake Snell, who pitched so well in game three, talked to Tony. On the way to the NLCS, just tell me what you're feeling right now. Really excited. Can't wait. More excited that we don't have to go to L.A. I didn't pack my bags. I did not pack it. Um, just really excited. I mean, the team was... What we did in that seventh inning was special. And we're playing team ball, we're pitching our butts off, we're playing unbelievable defense. So it's getting really fun, really fun. I'll use another word, but I'm gonna use fun. Talk about your outing last night. I mean, you grinded through it, a, a, an extremely tough lineup over there. You put the team in a position to win, you get the victory. A little redemption from your last start in New York. Yeah, oh, it's, uh, I was really looking forward to it. After my start in New York, I was pretty frustrated, so to be able to get another opportunity, I wasn't going to let it slide, especially against that lineup. They're talented. They can hurt you. We all know that. That team over there is it's a good team, a really good team, the best team in franchise history for them. So for us to do what we did is, means we, we're pretty special over here, too. I think everybody's finding that now. I got to ask you about the goose run there at the end. You took a trip around the bases with the goose. Is that going to be the new mascot? I don't know. I just saw it, I grabbed it, and I took off. And then I got tired towards the end, so I put it down. <laughs> Blake, go enjoy yourself, brother. And Austin Nola also had some big hits to talk about. You took a beating a little bit these last 
two series, foul balls off the face, yet you had your best performance offensively, saved the best for last. Talk a little about what it's meant for you to go out, and we know what you do defensively, we know how you handle the pitchers, but to go out and put together the offensive performance you have in this, not just this series, but the entire postseason, it's gotta mean something to you. They worked hard for it all year, you know? You, when you come into the postseason, it's it's a different feeling. Just go play, right? All the work you've done, let it let it happen. And I think that's just that's a good feeling to be able to just go out there and enjoy it, right? It, it doesn't happen all the time. You got to go enjoy every bit of it and be a little kid out there, and that's what I've done. Talk about the resilience of your starting pitcher, Joe Musgrove, today. He gave up. We saw what he did in New York. He gives up the two early runs against a, a, a very good offense. A very good. What did you tell him? What was it about his demeanor today that told you it was going to be all right? Me and him have this thing. We worked out together all offseason. We're going to talk about our training. And I, he's one of the hardest working guys I've ever seen. He's always in the weight room, always training. I said, we always talk about trust your training. When you get in those situations, it's going to come right back down to what you've trained for, right? And that's what he does. He, bring, he steps it right back down to his training. He doesn't let the situation get too big for him. Right back to his training, and now he executes. Beautiful. I mean, it wasn't just Joe. It was the back end of that the entire bullpen, all, all series long. Just talk about really shortening the game, really six innings, because that back end was throwing the ball so well. So well. The way they attack, I mean, you see it. You got guys with live arms throwing 100 miles, and you got Tim Hill throwing you know, underhand practically. They're executing breaking balls in the zone behind in the count. Like, you can't hit with that. You can't hit that. Guys are throwing, you can throw 100 and they can throw a breaking ball for a strike behind it. Like, come on, you ain't hit. Now, I know you pretty well. You're, you're, pre you're pretty studious when it comes to getting ready for this next series. How long will you wait before you start pulling out the, the iPad to begin, to begin working on I'm the next enjoying series? enjoying this one all night. Well, go enjoy yourself, brother. Congratulations. Then we close it out with the closer. Josh Hader talks to Tony about his third save. Josh, just talk a little bit about that last inning. You rolled through it. You look good. You guys are in here celebrating. Just talk about that last three outs you had to get. Look, I knew we had the top of the lineup, best three hitters in the league. And, uh, you know, I knew I just had to attack these guys, give them my best, and, um, yeah, I mean, that's all I got. And then, uh, we we had that slider, you know. That <laughs> We've started to see you use your full arsenal here in the postseason. You kind of got back on track with the fastball, but clearly you're comfortable enough to use the arsenal. You used the slider a little bit more today. Just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you face these guys a lot, and, you know, they see everything you got, so sometimes you got to mix it up, keep them off their toes, especially off the fastball. You know, that's my number one pitch, so to be able to mix it and keep them uh, aggressive, that's what you got to do. What does this feel like right now? Amazing, man. This is the best thing ever. We got, we're not done yet, though. We're not done. As Tony did all of the interviews, I watched around the room and saw a bunch of really happy major leaguers jumping around and splashing all that booze. I was soaked in beer just because I was caught in a small group of Padres pouring beer on each other while they all danced in a circle. Yes, that actually happened. And remember Big Poppy and his comments about the Padres? Manny Machado was doing an interview live on TV shirtless talking to the same guys who doubted the Padres so much. I don't know if I could have prepared myself for all of what was going on. I was in sports fans heaven, and as a lifelong sports fan, this was something I knew I may never get to do again. I snapped some pictures and took in some more of the scenes around me, then my job of being radio engineer was done. While I was down in the clubhouse, the players went back out on the field to get a team picture. Fans really hadn't left the building. They were standing and cheering, and the players were thanking them right back. And Blake Snell was running around with a fake goose that represented the Rally Goose. By the way, the Rally Goose was shown on Petco Park screens right before the big seventh inning, and it did get the crowd going just a bit. Some say the Rally Goose was the catalyst for the comeback. I'm not sure if it was, but I'm always going to be on the side of the Rally Goose. I packed up my stuff and I headed to my car, where I thought ahead and had a different shirt so a police officer wouldn't think I was drinking and driving. I have, however, thought about whether or not that excuse would fly, you know, being in the clubhouse after the Padres won and they sprayed you with a bunch of champagne and beer. Yeah, I thought about it, but I just wasn't willing to test it. 
As I walked to my car about an hour after the game ended, fans were still screaming and yelling and dancing and hugging in the streets. Here's some of what I caught going to my car. And before I forget, I said Will Myers did something legendary that night, and he did. He and his wife decided to walk the gas lamp after the win, and he ended up buying nearly $1,400 worth of drinks for the lucky patrons who were there to celebrate with one of the guys who got them there. Something those people will never forget. A city with so much sports heartbreak was able to celebrate being on top of the Dodgers for a change. I think it can be the most the most exciting victory in the history of the franchise. I think there's only a couple of others that compare to it. Uh, obviously, coming back and beating the Cubs in 1984 and earning their first World Series berth, that was huge. Uh, beating the Braves in 1998 was big. Going back to Atlanta, Game 6, after they blew a three-games-to-none lead and could not wrap up the series at home in Game 4 or Game 5, Back in 1998, they had to go back to Atlanta. and It's never a good feeling. And they were facing you know, the prospect of blowing a 3 nothing series lead, and that had never happened before to that point. But uh, they came up, uh, Sterling Hitchcock came up huge in Game 6, and they shut out Atlanta to go to the World Series. But neither of those two victories came over the hated Dodgers. So I, I think even though this was an NLDS, not an NLCS, I still think it has a chance to be rated as the greatest victory in the history of the franchise. I mean, you know, the combination of reaching the NLCS, the fact that it was at home, the fact that the atmosphere was beyond electric, and the fact that it came at the expense of the hated Dodgers certainly puts it right there at the top of the list. This was a well-deserved feeling, and people were going to soak it all in. That was until Tuesday. When the Philadelphia Phillies rolled into town for Game 1 of the National League Championship Series. It wasn't going to be easy, but the Padres had already beat two teams they weren't supposed to beat. Twelve games in October is a 97.3 The Fan original podcast for Odyssey. It was produced, voiced, edited, and written by me, Matt Scraby. Thanks to Adam Klug and Michael Valenzuela for helping to make this happen. Thanks to Tony Gwynn Jr. and Jesse Agler and Chris Ello for talking with me in-depth about the NLDS series. You can find me on social media at Matt Scraby. Please make sure to rate, review, and tell a friend. All you need to do is tell them to search 12 games in October in the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.